The University of Florida College of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The University of Florida College of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.25 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. Welcome to UF Health Med EdCast with UF Health Shands Hospital. I'm Melanie Cole and joining me today is Dr. Jeffrey Johnson. He's the Division Chief in Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery and an Assistant Professor in the Department of Otolaryngology at the University of Florida College of Medicine and he practices at UF Health Shands Hospital. He's here to highlight nasal obstruction for us today. Dr. Johnson, it's a pleasure to have you join us as we get into this topic. Tell us a little bit about the prevalence of nasal obstruction and what you see every day. So this is a very common issue. You know, there's multiple reasons to have nasal obstruction, but many people, you know, probably more than 50% of people suffer from some sort of nasal obstruction. That's difficulty getting airflow through the nose. And so people are going to be chronic mouth breathers or at least intermittent mouth breathers. A lot of times it's more noticeable at night when people are lying down to sleep, but it could happen any time throughout the day. So what are some of the most common causes that you see and deal with on a daily basis? Main issues we see uh, are either more environmental related or structural. The environmental causes, these will vary throughout regions of the country, but usually have to do with pollen or pet dander, dust mites, other tree and weed allergens. These particles are in the air, you're breathing through the nose, these are causing congestion, they cause increase in the size of the inferior turbinates, which are structures inside the nose that are designed to help warm and humidify the air as we breathe in before it enters our lungs, and when they become enlarged over time from chronic allergen exposure. That's what we call allergic rhinitis. So that's one of the most common diseases affecting adults. It's the most common chronic disease in children in the United States today and a fifth most common chronic disease in the U.S. Like overall population. Other symptoms would be clear, rhinor, red and watery eyes, itchy throat. So Dr. Johnson, as primary care providers are typically the first line of defense for patients as they present with some of these symptoms, tell us a little bit about what they would notice and what would send them for referral to ENT because, you know, sometimes these can be cared for in the primary provider or the medical home, but then there are times when the patient is presenting with other symptoms that would need referral. Definitely. And even if the cause is structural, not just the kind of allergens like we talked about it, it is, you know, a deviated septum or they've had trauma in the past and there's some kind of structural abnormality, the first line of treatment is the same. And before, you know, we would pursue any kind of surgical intervention. And as an ENT doctor or as a facial plastic surgeon, the first steps are a couple things. One is usually saline rinses. So one, the major brain you'll see is Neomed sinus rinse. People might have heard of neti pots. You'll see ads on TV for Navage or other expensive ones. Not usually necessary, but some sort of nasal irrigation. This is usually you're mixing distilled water with little pre-made saline packets, and that's getting rinsed in one side of the nose and out the other side. So what this does is it rinses out any of that mucus and you know clear drainage they're having. It rinses out all the little allergen particles that are breathing into the nose, and it 
kind of moisturizes the nasal mucosa so that the cilia on the mucosa are moving well, kind of gets your nose overall cleaned and ready to receive the medications. So the first line for allergic rhinitis or nasal obstruction is usually a nasal steroid. The three most commonly used nasal steroids are fluticasone, our trade name Flonase, Mometazone, or trade name Nasonex, and then Triamcinolone, which goes by the trade name Nasacort. These sprays are administered at least once a day, usually twice a day, once in the morning, once at night. It's important that the patient breathes through the mouth or holds their breath when they use the spray rather than trying to inhale it strongly like, a, like you know, an asthma inhaler. The medicine's already aerosolized, so it will squirt into the nose where it needs to go. And the bottle needs to be aimed away from the septum, which is the layer of cartilage and mucosa that separates the two sides of the nose. So you want to aim the tip of the bottle towards the outside corner of the eye on each side. And that'll help prevent irritation of the nasal septum and help prevent it from drying out too much. And so those are usually that. It's usually the first-line treatment, the irrigations followed by the nasal steroids. It's also important to counsel the patients that these medications take about three to four weeks of daily use to really get the full effect. It's not the sort of thing that will work immediately, like other decongestants or over-the-counter decongestants. And many of these medications are over-the-counter now. Fluticasone can be bought over-the-counter or it can be got with a prescription. If they have other allergy symptoms like itchy, watery eyes, scratchy throat, those sort of things, you could add an oral antihistamine second generation as well, which would be you know, Allegra, Zyrtec, or Claritin. So then discuss when surgical intervention may be helpful, and what does that discussion look like with patients? So when patients have tried the irrigations and the nasal steroids for at least four to six weeks, and they haven't had any significant improvement, that's when it's a good time to refer to an ENT doctor to kind of see if there's other structural abnormalities going on. Ideally, at that point in time, all the inflammation in the nose should be minimized. There are still cases where the medications just don't work that well, and you need to add on another medication, or you need to you maybe need allergy testing. But either way, that's a good time to refer from primary care when they've kind of failed the first-line treatment, which is the nasal steroids. And generally, it depends what the actual issue is. Usually, there may be some bit of inferior turbinate hypertrophy. You know, 70% of the population has a deviated septum. That doesn't mean 70% of the people in the population need a septoplasty, but it is very common to have a nasal septal deviation. And that can either be from trauma, and that could be minor, you know, early on in life, or a major trauma with nasal fractures at the same time. Or sometimes they just kind of grow crooked as we develop. And so surgery usually involves shrinking the sides of the inferior turbinates, straightening the septum, and then a lot of people also have what we call nasal valve collapse. This is where the side walls of the nose and the cartilage that form the tip of the side walls of the nose are weak, and they collapse against the septum, obstructing the nasal airway as well. So it's usually important to figure out which of those three things are causing the issue. Generally, surgery is done through just cuts on the inside of the nose without any external changes to the nose. In most cases, if people have had trauma previously or there's other issues with the nose, either congenital or you know, cosmetic deformities that they see as well, that can all be taken care of at the same time as the surgery for the inside of the nose. Before we get into when you feel that it's important for primary care providers to refer to ENT at UF Health Shands Hospital, 
when you're speaking to patients about home care and things that they can do while they're doing lavage, steroids, possibly surgical intervention, what would you like them to know about triggers and things that happen at home so that primary care providers may counsel their patients on these home care solutions? Very important. So if they haven't had allergy testing or they have, you know, if they've had allergy testing, we may know what the triggers are. Or even without that, the patient may notice that they're around the dog more, they get more symptoms, right? So pet dander may be an issue. Or there's a bunch of yellow pollen on all the cars outside, so maybe that's a trigger, you know, certain times of the year or worse. Other things like dust mites you may not notice. So good things to do at home are get a HEPA filter for the room, you know, make sure that you're laundering the sheets regularly, making sure that the house is clean overall. Those things can all help. You can see there's certain times where you're outside versus inside that's worse. The main thing is just keeping the air quality as, as good as you can inside the house as well. And if you do have exposure to animals and that seems to make it worse, then, you know, maybe trying to limit that. And when do you feel it's important to refer to ENT? Because that certainly is the question for the medical home and primary care is when can they deal with these in office and when should they refer? Definitely. I think once they have tried a patient on, you know, the nasal irrigations and the steroids and patients are actually been compliant with that use for at least four or six weeks and they've gotten no improvement or only minimal improvement, I think that's a reasonable time to refer. Or if on physical exam they see an obvious deviation of the septum or anything that looks like it might be, you know, a growth inside the nose or increased size of the inferior turbinates. Either way, we need to make sure that they've tried the nasal steroids for at least four or six weeks first. That's really the major turning point in when we want to refer to ENT. And then from there, you know, we can, you can, we get allergy testing if necessary. We can try other nasal sprays to add on top of that. One of them is azelastine or astelin. That's a nasal antihistamine. So you could add that in addition to the Flonase at the time of referral. That's another, another option. But any obvious deformity of the nose would be a good time to refer. And then once they've failed the irrigation nasal steroid routine for about a month or six weeks, that's a good time to refer. One other thing to rule out during the initial period is something we call rhinitis medicamentosa. So this is from overuse of oxymetazoline, trade name Afrin, but the more I've seen patients, the more I've noticed that Vicks, Simply Saline, all the, a few other brands have their own kind of nasal sinus spray that they've rebranded, and it's just the oxymetazoline under a new name so patients don't know that it's Afrin. And if this is used more than three days in a row, you can get a rebound swelling of the nasal tissue, and the only thing that will make it feel better is more of the Afrin or more of the oxymetazoline. That's really important that we get patients weaned off of this medication if they are using it. What a great point that you made, Dr. Johnson. So important, and what an educational podcast this was. Thank you so much for joining us today. And to refer your patient or to listen to more podcasts from our experts, please visit ufhealth.org slash medmatters. That concludes today's episode of UF Health Med EdCast with UF Health Shands Hospital. I'm Melanie Cole.